you wouldn't mind, stand with me. We're going to read the word as we get in tonight. We're going to read out of Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 1. I think it'll be on the screen. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded that all the, Jew, all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians heard, uh, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you or to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of God. You can be seated. All right. Well, welcome, welcome. Missed you guys last week. We were out of town. Um, and as we're getting into this, New Year, we'll come back to Acts. I just wanted to touch real quick on, we sent an email out last week, and I think Matt touched on it, this daily prayer rhythm. You guys, how many of you guys, that's a familiar topic, daily prayer rhythm. Okay. How many of you guys have been doing that this week, daily prayer rhythm? All right. Let's, let's, uh, hands up. If you're doing it, this is good. This is good. And it's okay if you're not. How many of you guys, like, you know, made resolutions and you've already stopped going to the gym? Anybody? You're already overeating and whatever. Uh, that's a little bit, a little bit silly. But daily prayer rhythm is not supposed to be like a New Year's resolution necessarily. Uh, really, it's a goal for us. For the first several hundred years of the church, in fact, uh, an early church document that we have called the Didache prescribed this practice of praying three times a day, in the morning, midday, and in the evening. And they would pray the Lord's Prayer often in that, that rhythm, morning, midday, and evening. That mimicked the, the common practice of the fixed time for the Jews, probably 9 a.m., midday, and 6 p.m., somewhere around there. That was the practice for the first several centuries of the early church. They would regularly pray, and that was the time when the church was probably most effective, if we're honest. I mean, it was massive growth, exponential growth in that time. And we have the scriptures because of what happened 
there. But honestly, prayer has become something that we don't necessarily, it's not built into our rhythms. How many of you guys would honestly say, like, you have a well-established rhythm of prayer? Good. There's a few. There should, hopefully, guys, we're people of, people of the way. We should, we should have that, but it's not the most prevalent thing. And it's good. Let's be honest with the reality of that. So the goal here is, as we've been praying and thinking about this next year, uh, how many of you guys did 4 p.m. prayer pretty consistently last year? Most of the time. Okay. Good. 4 p.m. prayer was, was, was a way of us collectively praying at the same time, praying for the church, praying for common vision, praying for unity, and I hope that that was a good time. How many of you guys enjoyed that? How many felt like refreshed and, and uh, clear vision for what the Lord is doing through that time? Good. Daily prayer rhythm, this, this idea of bringing, we're, we're doubling down on prayer. 4 p.m. Uh, was, was a, a good step, and I want to double down on our prayer efforts. The goal is three times a day. And what does that mean? Does that mean three hours of your day you need to carve out to pray? Is that, is that what that means? No. What I, what I mean by a daily prayer rhythm is to have built into your lifestyle a rhythm, a habit of turning your attention to the Lord. So in the morning when you wake up, maybe instead of the first thing you do, reaching for your phone and checking your emails. Anybody else? I'm guilty of that. First thing you do, reach for your phone and check your emails. Because something happened between 1 a.m. and 6 a.m. that I need to look at my phone. <clears throat> of course not. Instead of that being our knee-jerk first thing, if we open and begin our day by turning our attention to the Lord and remembering the Lord's prayer, shifting our attention in the midday, when we're thinking about lunch and we're getting hungry, maybe it's 4 p.m. for you. If that's an established rhythm for you, maybe you keep that at 4 p.m. But shifting our attention in the middle of your day to think outside of you and pray for the lost or pray for the church, to pray outside of you. These are not, not a time to, to pray the inward request, but pray outside of your own requests. Intercession. And in the end of the day, in the evening, in this, find out what works for you. But to reflect the, uh, the saint several hundred years later, uh, named Ignatius, coined this, this type of prayer called the examine. Anybody familiar with that? Praying examine? The idea is to take a, a minute at the end of your day and to examine your day. Specifically looking for places of gratitude. To, to take a minute, doesn't have to be long, and say, Jesus, where did I partner with you today? Where did I feel your prompting and I followed? How did I obey today? How did I serve you? How did I bless somebody else? Where did you work amongst me? Amongst me? Where did you work in my midst? 
And likewise, Jesus, where did I ignore your voice today? Where did I ignore your prompting? How, how can I repent for ways that I failed to follow you? That's what it means to, to examine. And then to follow that with gratitude. Jesus, thank you that you showed up. Thank you that I had enough to eat today. Simple things. Doesn't have to be complicated. Doesn't have to be some amazing miracle. But just to reflect with gratitude and see what God does. And this is a beautiful cycle, ideally, that at the end of our day we're responding in gratitude. What that's going to do is it's going to fuel your prayer tomorrow morning. Because you'll remember, God showed up. I prayed for this in the morning. I prayed the Lord's Prayer, and I prayed that the Lord would do this. And you know what? I saw that he did that. Or he's working in that way, and he's showing up. Thank you, Jesus. That's going to fuel tomorrow's prayer. And then talk about it. Share those stories of how God is responding through your prayer. Does that make sense? Does that seem overly complicated or burdensome three times a day? I hope not. I hope not. The, the idea is just shift your attention. And build it into your rhythms. Build it into your habits that we would shift our focus and our attention off of the things that are so easily preoccupying us and sometimes necessarily preoccupying us, but to shift our eyes to Jesus. Make sense? All right, let's get into our passage we are back in Acts. We took a break, took a pause for Advent and for Christmas and all the festivities. And we are back in the book of Acts. And my goal today is sort of to introduce the epistles to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians specifically. Clearly nothing exhaustive. Nothing detailed. I'm not going to be able to give you like a point-by-point -point description of what 1 Corinthians is about. If you want that, there's like plenty of good commentaries. That's, that's not our goal tonight. My goal is to look real quickly at, and we've been doing this as we've been going through Acts, at why Paul's writing these letters. Why is Paul addressing his attention to these cities, these churches in these cities after he is there. So as you remember, as we've been through the book of Acts, and we're going to continue here for the next several months, we're going to be in Acts still. So buckle up. Paul's been on his second missionary journey. You remember he went from Antioch to Derby to Lystra to Iconium to Galatia to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and now we find him in Corinth. It's a whole long list of names. At this point, we should be all be familiar with those sort of micro-narratives of how Paul shows up in a city. What does he do first? What does Paul do when he comes to a city? Goes to the synagogue. What almost always happens? They reject him. And he goes to the Gentiles. This is like a consistent theme that's been happening 
you know, and sometimes he's getting arrested, sometimes he's getting beaten, he's getting chased out. Very consistent themes have been happening as Paul goes to these cities. And along the way, as we've been doing this, as we've reached a city that Paul wrote a letter to, we've been pausing. And we've been trying to, like, look at the epistle, the letter that Paul writes, and trying to, to understand some of the backdrop and the context of why Paul's writing this letter. So we did this for Galatians, Thessalonians. We, have we hit any other ones yet? I don't know. We're in Corinth, Corinth now. Corinthians. So the goal tonight are three goals. We'll see if I can do this. <laughs> Provide a little bit of background info. Super helpful as you read First and Second Corinthians if you understand some of the background info of why Paul's writing this letter. What's happening in this city, in this church, that's causing Paul to write this letter? We're going to look at a few of the huge problems that Paul's addressing in his letter to the Corinthians. And then hopefully we're going to draw out some, uh, some so what's. Some applications or some implications for us of like, okay, so what? So Paul wrote a letter to this church in Corinth. So what? All right, so let's get some background, okay? It's been said, actually I heard a, a preacher this week, I listened to a sermon, I heard someone say, we could modernize this and say the book of 1 Corinthians is the book of 1 Californians. It's been said, seriously, I heard a preacher say that this week. Um, <laughs> it's been said there's a lot of similarities between uh, ancient Corinth and the state that we call home. I want to take a look a little bit at what makes Corinth unique. What makes it tick? What makes it different than Athens or, or Berea or Iconium, any of these other cities that Paul went to? The city of Corinth is one of the better excavated cities that we have, that, that historians have developed. We actually know quite a bit about this city. The ancient city, ancient Greek city, uh, really was destroyed in 146 B.C. This is all background. 146 B.C. by a Roman general, and basically for a hundred years laid pretty much empty. There wasn't much going on there. About 46 B.C., the city that Paul comes to was refounded. About 46 B.C., Julius Caesar refounds this city as a Roman colony. So when Paul shows up, no building was there that was there was more than 100 years old. And 100 years sounds like a long time, but for some of these ancient cities, that's really new. Corinth was located, and still is located, on this narrow stretch of land that it, at its narrowest was like three and a half miles wide between the Aegean and the Adriatic Sea. And there was no way of getting ships across that, so they actually developed this, like, this system of carting ships. They'd take them out of the water, they'd put them on a cart, and they'd cross this land bridge three and a half miles. Because it was safer than traveling the dangerous journey around the bottom of, of really Greece down there. 
So instead of making that long and treacherous journey, they would, they would remove the ship and they'd travel across the three and a half miles on land. Which turned, really, Corinth into this like bustling center of commerce. It was a very uh, affluent city. Excavations have uncovered rows upon rows upon rows of shops. Sort of the ancient equivalent of like strip malls after strip malls. Lots and lots of storefronts and stores. And there was huge, large meat markets in the center of the city. A good portion of it would be supplied by the city's many temples. They would be sacrificing animals and the carcasses and the meat would then be sold in the city. Corinth had a theater district. It had a large theater and a small music hall. It had a substantial government district. It had a, hu- a big center of it was, was for its proconsuls and its tribunal and the different various civic offices that were there as a Roman colony. And what's fascinating about this city is because it's a newer development, what archaeology has shown is that there's several places throughout the city where there's these monuments with inscriptions showing the benefactor. So several places throughout the city where there's the, you know, the, the bricks that have your name, your family name in it because you paid money to help put a brick in there. That same general idea. In fact, Erastus, who, who's mentioned in the scripture, if it's the same Erastus, he was a public benefactor who laid a good section of pavement or sidewalk in front of the theater, and there's an inscription to him there. There's several of these statues and monuments that are put up throughout the city uh, as a way to promote the benefactors of the city to promote their own service, their civic generosity. And there was these statues and monuments put throughout the city. Many of these wealthy benefactors authorized construction of these things to make themselves look good, to, uh, to show off their wealth, their success, and their gifts to the city. All of that sets the backdrop in the context of this like culture of self-promoting, self-congratulating, boasting, this mentality that inhabits this city. Morally, the city of Corinth <clears throat> was a port city, and it was known for its sexual promiscuity. In fact, the Greek language developed a word that meant to live like a Corinthian, which meant to live immorally. To live like a Corinthian was to live immorally. It was, it was one and the same. And yet, despite all the moral depravity and the, self, the self-proclamation, there was evidently a well-established Jewish synagogue. All of these factors contribute to making a very unique city for Paul to do ministry in. Strategy was required. Careful planning was required. 
All of those who became a part of this church in this city, the city of Corinth, found that living a godly life in midst of this city would be a challenge. The temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, was at the city's center. It stood uh, on a 1,900-foot 1900 tall hill that overlooked the city. Thousands of female slave priestesses, if you can call them that, cult prostitutes, would go into the city at night to do their work, to search for worshipers of the goddess of Aphrodite. So Paul clearly had his work cut out for him as he's going to do ministry in this city. And in spite of all of this, the city of Corinth was a very strategic spot for the gospel advancement. It had good influence. There was mobility and diversity of people there. The gospel would spread from this city. And this leads us to what we read, what we read about Paul in Acts 18. that Nikolai looked at several months ago. And you guys all remember his sermon, right? should go back and listen to the podcast. We're going to retouch some of this stuff. Acts 18, scripture that I just read. Really what I want to anchor on is what the Lord said. By the time Paul was in Corinth, by the time he makes it to this city that I just described, we, we just did the background piece. By the time Paul gets there, he had been on a wild ride. He'd had a pretty crazy journey, if you think about it. He'd been arrested multiple times, beaten, kicked out, chased out, left at night, rejected. And here he is in this growing major metropolitan city. This city that is rampant with immorality, with self-promotion, with seeking of prosperity. All of that is just rampant. And Paul finds himself in this city to do the work of the ministry. And evidently, he's struggling a little. It should stand out to us as we read Acts 18. How many of you guys have paper Bibles? with you tonight. How many of you guys see red letters? If you have a red letter Bible in your Bible right there. That should stand out. The first time in a long time in the book of Acts, we see red letters. The Lord comes and speaks to Paul to encourage him. One night in a vision, this is verse 9, do not be afraid but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. I have many in this city who are my people. That should stand out to you. The Lord speaks to Paul. Evidently, Paul needed some reassurance. He needed some encouragement. He needed a calling to be here. It wasn't enough for him to just truck along 
for him to be in this city. Something was different. The challenge that he faced, that he knew he was up against in this culture, was too much for him to bear. And so the Lord speaks. He gives him a calling and a word. Paul's going to end up staying in Corinth for 18 months. It's the longest, second longest stay in any city that Paul does ministry in, besides Ephesus. He stays 18 months in the city. And this week, as I've been praying about this, this scripture, and I've been praying about what to share, and how do I cover first and potentially second Corinthians in one sermon? So if I, as I've been thinking about that this week and praying about that, that this week, I couldn't help but think about how much this word from Jesus speaks to us here and now. This is one of the most repeated phrases in all of Scripture. If not the most. Do not be afraid. Fear not, for I am with you. Hundreds of times throughout the Scripture, that phrase is repeated. Do not be afraid. Fear not, for I am with you. So I was thinking about this today. It reminds me of that story of the prophet Elijah. Shortly after his, his famous confrontation with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. You guys remember this story? 1 Kings 18. Let's just read this section because it's so good. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. 1 Kings 18, verse 20. Ahab, so Ahab sent to the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, this is one of my favorite quotes right here. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. We know the story, right? So Elijah sets up this confrontation. He sets up this conflict between him and the prophets of Baal. Puts on this test. The first God to send fire from heaven and consume the offering, that's the real God. That's the true God. So the prophets of Baal spend all day, they're chanting and they're dancing and they're cutting themselves and, and they're working themselves, themselves up in a tizzy, dancing around. And I love Elijah. He's, he's like, he's, well, he is mocking them. He says things like, hey, maybe your God's asleep. Maybe he's in the bathroom relieving himself and he can't come right now. Maybe he can't hear you. Chant louder. Eventually, we all know this story. If you don't, it's worth a read just because it's, it's fun. He sets up this, his altar. He pours water over everything. And he prays a really simple prayer. And God sends fire from heaven and consumes his offering. He won. God did it. God showed up. God responded to Elijah's prayer, and he showed up in a miraculous way, and, and things happened, and, and the prophets of Baal all died. And like, it was an amazing story. 
And what's striking is that almost immediately after this, one of the next things we read is he's running, Elijah, who just had this victory, he's running and he's hiding in a cave, terrified for his life. He says, Lord, I'm the only one. And he's hiding in a cave, terrified for his life. He fears that Jezebel, this woman, is going to find him and kill him. He's convinced that he's the only one left. And the Lord comes and speaks to him, very similar to what the Lord said to Paul. He still has work to do. And you are not the only one, Elijah. He says, I've reserved 7,000 in this case. This reminds me of this story. The Lord speaks to Paul and he says, do not be afraid. Go on, speaking, don't be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you and harm you. I have many in this city. Yes, this pagan, ungodly, immoral, self-promoting, self-proclaiming city. I have many here who I have called. And they need to hear the word that you have to proclaim, Paul. Stay. Don't be afraid. And he stayed for 18 months. I think the reality is, the reality for all of us is that it's tough to be a disciple of Jesus where we live. There's challenges in our culture. California is not the easiest place to call yourself a Christian. It's tough to practice this ancient ethic that we have. In a culture much like we see in the city of Corinthians, city of Corinth. And to all of us, if the Lord has you here, It's not by accident. If the Lord has you in this city, if the Lord has you in this county, it's because he has something for you to do. There's a a reason for that. The Lord wants to speak through you. He wants to work through you. And I think this is what the Lord's saying to us is, fear not. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. God is with us and has many in Sonoma County that he has claimed as his own. If you are called here, then be a missionary here. If you are called here, then be on mission. Fear not. God has many in this city that he has called, claimed as his own. So Paul stays in the city. He stays in Corinth for 18 months. And then after that, he continues for years to deal with the drama in this city. The craziness that would come. If you've read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you know some of the drama. Because he was called. Because the Lord had commissioned him with this task at hand. Not just because it was convenient or not because it was the best environment for himself to thrive, but because the Lord had commissioned him. So he stayed and was faithful. 
He plants this church, and he continues to, to minister to them for years, even when they're rejecting him and in conflict. There's drama. There's definitely some drama here. The reality is, if you're looking at 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, it's easy to almost over-romanticize the early church era. To long and say, like, oh, if the church today might be more like the New Testament church. You guys felt that sometimes? If we might just be more like the New Testament church, you might want to read 1 and 2 Corinthians, if that's how you feel. The church that Paul's dealing with, that he plants here, is full of divisions. There's factions that develop. There's, there's this, like, I'm following Paul, and I'm following Apollos, and there's divisions that develop because one charismatic leader is different than a different leader. Some say, you know what, I'm super spiritual. All I do is follow Jesus. You can follow Paul. I'm going to follow Jesus. There's divisions. They develop this scorn and this hatred for each other, brothers and sisters. One member of this church apparently was hooking up with his mother-in-law. Stepmother, sorry. Same thing. These Christians were turning communion, their common meal together, they were turning this meal into an opportunity to show off their own stature, to create more divisions and show off their wealth, creating a whole division between the, the rich and the poor. And they were turning their, their worship expression into like this free-for-all to show how gifted each one of them was. Show off their own spiritual gifts. You need to hear what I have to say because I have the word from the Lord. No, you need to hear what I have to say. Conflict, self-promotion, self-glorification is happening. The spirit of the city is, is there in the church too. It gets worse. The church turns on its founder. It accuses Paul, so to speak, of skimming off the top of an offering that they send Charitable accounts. There, this church flirts and, and looks to new fancy teachers. Maybe they're more charismatic than Paul or more uh, fancy and wealthy than this guy who keeps getting beat up. Maybe these other teachers represent a better class of spiritual leader and so we should follow them. Not this crazy guy who keeps sending us hard things in the mail. This congregation allowed things to get uglier and uglier. And when Paul visits, they actually had the, the guts to call him a liar when he decided not to come back on his second visit. Second visit. The reality is, guys, if that's the New Testament church, I'd take you guys any day. <laughs> if that's the picture of the New Testament church, then I think we're good here. The bottom line, of course, is that the first century church, just like our church, has its fair share of problems. It's not over-romanticized. The first century church 
was far from being the ideal fulfillment of the apostles' vision for what the church could be. The ecclesia, the called out group of, of people. Just like we are. We're far from that. The reality is that many modern churches, many find ourselves just alongside, just alongside the city of Corinth, the church of Corinth. We're dealing with similar issues. If we were honest, we too sometimes have brought too much of our culture around us into the values of the church. We've allowed the cultural norms around us to infiltrate how we do church, how we follow Jesus, pointing us to a very different set of values than that that Jesus or the apostles did. So real quick, let's look at a couple of things that Paul emphasizes in his letters, the way he deals with these issues. Scholars think the two letters that we have in your New Testament, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, scholars think that it's likely that those are actually 2nd and 4th Corinthians. There were two other letters probably based on evidence within the letters that Paul wrote first. Together, these two letters make up a huge section of what we call our New Testament. And Paul's dealing with a lot of issues, and I think a lot of them apply very clearly to us today. He's, he's dealing with huge themes, and he develops them, such as division and unity in the church, spiritual gifts, love, the resurrection. These are huge themes that Paul's dealing with. All of that stemming directly from the cultural reality that the church found itself in. And in 1 Corinthians, he writes to this church, he writes this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. Verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. You're starting to get a picture of why Jesus had to speak to Paul. My speech and my message was not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul tells this, this church in Corinth that the great solution to the pride that was overwhelming this city and the church, the, the sexual provision, perversion, all of that, the great solution was the cross of Jesus. I decided to know nothing except Jesus and him crucified. The solution, the answer is Jesus and him crucified. The solution that he offers, the, we, we, we must proclaim this fully sufficient, the, the self-humiliating, self-denying cross of Jesus. 
We can't proclaim it in arrogance or that we'll bring it down of its value. And that's the foundation, really summing up the whole two letters. (laughs) Jesus and him crucified. The solution to divisions in the church, the cross. The answer to sexual immorality, it's the cross. Disagreements and lawsuits, I'm just reading the titles here. It's 1 Corinthians. It's the cross. Marital issues. Dietary issues. Idolatry. The answer is not found in human wisdom and reasoning. It's not found in working harder or trying harder. The answer is not found in anything you can come up with on your own. It's found only in the cross of Christ. And we live out the implications of what he accomplished on that cross. What he accomplished in that place of victory has implications for how we live. And that's the true way of love. That's where Paul gets when he's the famous passage on love. It's the implications of the cross. You can't get there without the cross. It's not self Promotion, it's self-denial. It's not boasting about your own gifts and your power, but submitting all of those things to order for the sake of mutual benefaction, for the mutual good of the church. It's not about your gifts. It's about each other because of the cross. So for Paul, and I think for us, for us here today, The cross is the answer. It's not a answer, it's the answer. It has demands, it has implications for us. I think that's the so what. What do you do with that? What do we do with this letter? What do we do with this journey that Paul's been on and his, his need for this encouragement from the Lord? All that that just happened. Towards the end of 1 Corinthians, in the most clear passage that Paul expounds the reality of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, he opens this chapter with this. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the words that I preached, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he goes on, he appeared, he appeared. He's really raised from the dead. He's alive. I love that, that he says, I want to remind you, brothers. It seems simple, you guys, but I think that's what we do. That's why we're here week after week. I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, about the reality of a resurrected Messiah, the reality of the cross, that he has accomplished it. The cross is enough. I want to remind you, brothers, 
We remind each other of the gospel. We challenge each other with the gospel. Again and again, we tell the story. We, we proclaim the good news. We rehearse and we remind ourselves. That's why we take communion week after week to remind ourselves of the gospel. Until we can say, I cannot help but speak of the things that I have seen and heard. I can't stop talking about what I've seen God do. The gospel is so real. The cross has really changed my life, has really shown its effect and its power in my community. And I can't help but talk about it. And there's grace to enable you Right now, the power of the cross, there's grace to enable you to live like Jesus, to practice the way he did, to practice the life he lived, to lay your life down for the sake of the gospel. This week, I read this, reread this John Piper quote. We were talking about it, prayer and worship on Friday night. I've just been thinking about this. John Piper said this. He said, mission is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists because worship doesn't. I think that's so true. Mission is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not private or tribal or national or an ethnic privilege. It is for all. And that's why we go on mission. Because we have tasted of the joy of worshiping Jesus. We have felt the power of the cross in our life and in our community. And we cannot help but talk about its effect in our life. And so we worship. Habakkuk 2, and Jordan talked about this in our Advent series. For the earth is filled. This is where this whole thing is going. This is, this is the plan of the Lord. The whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's where this whole thing is going, that, going, that in Sonoma County, that Sonoma County will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Let's, let's modern language there. That we, as disciples of Jesus, being formed into his image and likeness, that it's our, our privilege to reflect his image as we worship and we live out the implications of the cross and we display the supreme worth and value of Jesus so that all around us, those who see us would see the supreme value of the one that we worship. Because of how we live as a church and as a community. That's what it means that the whole earth would be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That the whole earth would be full of the knowledge of the value of Jesus. That happens as you and I display his value. As we display his worth. The question for us Really, question for the Corinthian church, is he that valuable? 
to you? Is he your supreme value? Has he had that kind of an influence and a mark on your life? When people observe your life and the way you live in community, when people observe us as a church, are they convinced, are they convicted by the effectiveness of the cross? Do they see the power of the cross by the way you live? Do they see the supreme value, the glory of the resurrected Messiah in the way you live, the way that you do family life, the way that you live as a church and as a community? Or do they just see another person, another consumer, another person jockeying for position and comfort and prosperity? Another person trying to live out some idea of morality even. To be on mission here requires that we submit to the full weight of the cross. That we have a calling from the Lord. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Keep speaking. Keep telling the good news. Reminding everybody about the good news of the resurrected Messiah. The cross. The effectiveness of the cross in your life. We're going to go back into worship here in a minute. Then we're going to take communion. But I just want to pray for us as we do that. Jordan, if you want to come back up. Father, as we go into this new year, in a way, nothing has changed. Life goes on. The calendar flips and, and we continue. Business as usual. But God, I ask that as we go on in this year, that we would be a people so touched by the reality of the cross so impacted by the truth of the gospel, so moved by what you've accomplished that we cannot help but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. We cannot help but testify of the good news of Jesus. God, that we ask that in Sonoma County, that you would show yourself as real, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover this county, and that you would use us as image bearers to display your glory and your supreme value in all that we do. Jesus, we love you and we bless you. Amen.